Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. It's good to be back with you guys. Had a little family camping trip last weekend. Uh, so that was an amazing time with my family. Uh, but I did miss you guys, and I'm excited to be here today. I want to thank Casey uh, for holding down the fort and bringing the word last week. Uh, when I was listening to his message, he, he made reference to that I only have him preach about Pharisees. And so I guess the truth is out. I can't hide that anymore. Um, but anyway, um, Casey, thank you for, for doing that. Uh, you did a great job. So uh, this morning, like he mentioned, we're in a new mini-series within Mark. So the first one was Make Room, what was it, eight or nine weeks, um, and basically three chapters, uh, if that, of the book of Mark, two and some. And this next movement in the book of Mark, we're titling Pressure. And simply stated, uh, as you read through the Gospel of Mark, at this point in time, like the pressure is rising. It's, it's like things are intensifying. There's more pressure on Jesus, on his followers. There's pressure coming from all different directions. And our goal as we look through this next movement in the book of Mark is to see what we can learn from the presence of pressure in this Gospel. And so we're going to look at it a few different ways over the next six, seven weeks in this, um, in this chunk. But I'm really excited for what God wants to speak to us. I believe that he's already been doing some, some amazing things in our hearts and our conversations through really diving into this gospel. And I'm trusting and believing the Holy Spirit's going to continue to work on us and, uh, and help us to move forward in our walks with the Lord. So that being said, this morning we're just going to jump right in. To Mark chapter 3, we're going to be verses 7 through 19. If you want to read along, you're welcome to. It'll be on the screen behind me or in your Bible or Bible app. If you're reading along, you're like, that's not what mine says. It's okay. I'm reading out of the NIV. You might have a different translation. Nevertheless, let's dive into this. Starting in verse 7. So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, in the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And whenever impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, James, or Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would breathe life into our time, God, that you would uh, reveal yourself, reveal our next steps in pursuing you and others in your name. Holy Spirit, I pray these words would be of you, not me, and that this time would glorify you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. 
Yeah, that's right. So, we got a couple things going on here, and as always, uh, we're going to unpack this and learn a little bit about the context, and then we're going to see what the Lord might have for us this morning. But it's important, I think, whenever we come to this moment, because it seems disjointed. You just start off, and it's like, Jesus withdrew to his disciples, and then it tells about how he gave strict orders to the demons, and then it just skips to the next, like, then Jesus went up to the mountainside. And it doesn't even say then, it just says Jesus went up on a mountainside. It can seem disjointed, so it's important that we understand the context of what this is happening within here. Um, prior to what we read today, we see that Jesus has this set of run-ins with the Pharisees, right? With the, the religious elite of the area. And they're questioning him about the way he's engaging with people, the way he's preaching, and the customs and religious rules that he is bending, if not fully breaking. In case he touched on three of those instances last week, the previous couple weeks, we touched on a couple more. But that's what's happening up to this point. And then in the midst of these interactions with the Pharisees, Jesus is still healing folks, driving out demons, preaching the kingdom of God, staying on mission and doing what he came to do. All amidst all of these tensions and conflicts with both flesh, with the Pharisees, and in the spiritual realm with the demons. Like this stuff is just happening all, all together here. And in Mark 3, 6, we read that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So that was Casey's last verse from last week. That's the verse immediately before we start this is, hey, obviously the pressure is intensifying. And they're trying to plot a way to kill him. I think it's really clear here that, that it's, it's becoming quite an intense environment. Wherever Jesus goes and in the back rooms of the government and the religious elite all around, there's just an intensity. It's like a pressure cooker. Stuff is happening. It's creating a lot of, of angst uh, amongst the leaders, and stuff is getting real at this point. There's no avoiding it. Like, the, the news is out. Jesus is here, and it's creating some tension. And then the very next verse, we read that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to a lake, and a large crowd followed. It's like, oh yeah, they're trying to kill him. And then he withdrew to a lake, and he, he preached there. Now, these, these people that were following him around that he was, he was preaching to, they'd heard about all that he was doing. It says in the Word, they heard about all that he was doing. All, and what was he doing? What was Jesus doing that they would be alluding to here? He was doing miracles, right? Healing people, driving out demons, engaging in this, this spiritual battle. But mostly, these people would have been flocking to Jesus, as it says, for what he was doing. They wanted the outcomes that they witnessed as other people were healed, as shriveled hands, withered hands were, were healed, right? As paralytics picked up their mat and walked, like they wanted a piece of that. Word had traveled around about this, and they hoped that they could experience either for themselves or maybe someone they loved, or at least witness this Jesus guy and the miracles and this power that he was wielding. Now, they give the name of the different places that people came from, right? They name all these different places. And to us here, we're like, I don't know where those are, <laughs> right? Like, I got to look it up on a map to understand why they're naming all these different places. It wasn't because there was some notable character from those places. It was because it was notable that those represent all the directions around the area. People were coming from all directions, all places, flocking to Jesus, that's why he's giving these names of places that people were coming from. It's like, yo, there was a large crowd. And this wasn't just like a Capernaum thing. This wasn't just like a Galilee thing. This was like everywhere, right? Like people were coming from where? Everywhere. To flock, to, to see what he would do and see if they might be able to get a piece of that for themselves. 
And at this point, the crowd that was flocking to Jesus was getting so intense. People were pressing in on him, just hoping to touch him and receive some of this healing power. And if you read this without understanding the heart of Jesus and the other interactions he's had with these people, you can be like, oh, he doesn't want to get ritually dirty, so he goes off in a boat to separate himself. Because it almost makes it sound like that when you read it. Oh, the diseased people were trying to, to press in to, to touch him, so he told his disciples to get a boat for him so he could get away from them. That wasn't the case at all. Think of it as this. People were pressing in. It was chaotic. There were people everywhere. And he just wanted to get a little bit of space so he could speak to them. Think of it as like this pulpit moment, like, hey, he just needs a few steps back so that he can have some perspective and talk to everybody and that everybody can see him and have some equal participation. We know with the way in which he interacted with the leper and the other diseased and paralyzed people that this wasn't a, oh, a ritually clean moment where he wanted to separate himself and that's why he hopped out on the boat. Sometimes we can misunderstand that and be like, oh, Jesus didn't want to be around them. No, he wanted to get to a place where everybody could see and receive and engage with this message that he was preaching. And then in verse 11, we see another instance of Jesus coming into conflict with the demonic. Yet again, it's almost like every week there's some conflict with religious elite, with the flesh, and with the demons, right? With the demonic, the spiritual aspect. It says the evil spirits recognized who Jesus was, even though the crowds did not. Now, a couple men named Longman and Garland, that's their last names, put it this way in their Bible commentary. And I'm always of the mindset, if somebody says it really good, there's no need for me to try to tell it to you different. So I'm just going to read a quote to you. They say, while the crowds fell upon Jesus, the demons fall before him in submission to his authority. They're crying out, you are the son of God, is best understood as a futile attempt to render him harmless. These cries of recognition were designed to control him and strip him of his power in accordance with the conception that knowledge of the precise name of quality of a person confers mastery over him. Son of God in this context is a true designation of who Jesus is, expressed by his bitter foes, the demons. Jesus silenced the outcry of the demons because the time for the clear revelation of who he was had not yet come. And the demons were hardly appropriate heralds of him. Amen? I think if Jesus wanted his news spreading, the demons were not the ones that he wanted sharing that news. So he says, nah, zip it. Just zip it. And and at first, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around this. Like, wait, them, like, calling out his name is them trying to strip power from him or whatever. But it's almost like, hey, we know your secret. This is Jesus. This is the son of God. Like they're, It's almost like they're tattling on him. They're trying to get his secret out. Hey, this is him. They're trying to assert some sort of authority. Like, hey, gotcha. Right? Like almost this hide and seek. Or you've been trying to keep the secret and we're just going to blast out all your news. And, and Jesus is just like, no. Like, zip it. You, you got nothing on me. Just stop. Just stop. And then immediately after this conflict... It's mentioned, um, we read of the appointing of the 12, the 12 main disciples that Jesus will walk with from this point forward. Now, Mark has narrated the call of these four fishermen, right? Like we've heard in detail as these fishermen are called. We've heard in detail the call of Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. And he referred repeatedly to Jesus' disciples, which was a group of followers distinct from the crowd. So as we went through these first couple chapters, we hear him talk about the disciples, the followers. And it's not just this small group yet. It's just a group of people. It's just a group of people. 
And now he appoints a special group of 12 from among this larger group. He calls out specific people intentionally into a deeper, more engaged, intentional relationship with him. And from this point forward, at least in the Gospel of Mark, when the term disciples is used, it's referring to these 12. Before this, it's referring to a larger group, but from this point forward, it's pretty much exclusively used to refer to these 12 men. Now, the appointment of 12 disciples has profound theological importance. Think for a second, where else in the Bible is 12 a significant number? Where else is 12 a significant number? A first century Jew who was here at this point in time would have known right away that there's a connection to the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus intentionally chose 12 disciples, thus indicating that he viewed this movement that he was establishing as a restoration and a renewal of the destiny of Israel. You see, the Jewish people, they were waiting for for God to do a work to restore this divine destiny of Israel. And when they saw that Jesus had appointed 12 men to walk with him, to, to engage in this mission of reconciliation with him, they would have, it would have just pointed, it would have been just throwing off all the alarms like, hey, this is it. He's, he's bringing back the restoration, our, our purpose, our destiny. He, he's starting it. And for us, we just pass, oh, 12, cool. I guess that's, I don't know, maybe he couldn't have any more friends than 12. Or, you know, you, you just read past and you don't understand that, no, this is pointing to something that was extremely significant to the people of that day and time. And then furthermore, he doesn't identify himself as one of the 12. And that's also significant because he stands over and above the restored Israel as Messiah and Lord. So you have Messiah and Lord Jesus, and then you have these 12 disciples which are alluding to the restored divine purpose, the restoration of Israel as they had been praying for and reading about for years and years. So you have verses 7 through 12, and in there we see the pressure is mounting. We know that from verse 6 that the Pharisees are plotting with the Herodians to find a way to kill Jesus, but meanwhile he's preaching to the crowds. People are flocking to him for healing. He's engaged with an ongoing battle with the demonic, and they declare who he is and his presence at every encounter they have with him. At every encounter they have with him. And then we jump ahead to verses 13 and 15, and we see Jesus make this specific call to 12 men who he intentionally and specifically calls to a greater level of relationship and responsibility And then in verses 16 and through 19, we get that list of men and a few things about them. Nicknames they may have had, the way Jesus named them, or that one of them is going to be betraying him. Um, And we get get that picture. So there's kind of three chunks we're dealing with here. And out of all that, today I feel led to really hone in on verses 13 through 15 and try to wrap our minds around this concept of the pressure of a calling. The pressure of our calling. We read that Jesus called to him those he wanted. And then they simply came to him. It says he called them and they came to him. He wanted them, he called them, and their response was to come to him. Now the purpose for which these 12 were appointed was twofold. One was so that they might be with him. He called them so that they might be with him. And the second that we see is that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. There was a twofold calling that we see at this point. See, discipleship or this call to be with him is first and foremost about attachment to the master. 
being with and learning from Jesus. Like being with him and learning from him. Attachment to him. Identification with him. That, that First and foremost, that is the attribute of discipleship. That is the first step. I identify as a follower of you, as part of your crew, your family. You are my master, my king. I am attached to you. These 12 men were to live with Jesus. They were to travel with him, converse with him, and follow the model that he gave them as they went about their way. Mark's gospel indicates that much of Jesus' time was actually occupied with their training. Yet their training was not an end of itself. I think something that the West, that means us, right, the United States and Europe and some that would be defined as the West, we're really good at wanting to be trained. We want to learn. We want to acquire a lot of knowledge. We want to know things. And all too often that acquisition of knowledge and that training can be an end in of itself. It can be a resume builder and there's never any outflow from what is being poured into us. And that's not the case with discipleship. As Jesus calls him to follow him, to attach to him, to identify with him, model everything he does, they are to be sent out from that place of that teaching and training. Now, we don't see them sent out until chapter 6, verse 7. We'll get there in a few weeks, um, at least in the book of Mark. But the ministry that Jesus called them to was to consist of preaching the good news and driving out demons. That sounds like an easy mission, right? Sounds like something that's part of everyday life. Just preach the gospel, drive out demons. That's what he's calling them to do. And it's significant for us to realize that this is the exact same thing Jesus has been doing. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to be like this part of ministry, and you're going to go serve in this other area of ministry. It's like, no, here's what I've been doing, and, and now it's your turn. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to lead you through your time with me, our conversations, our mentorship. You are going to do ministry in the same way you are seeing me perform it. These 12 are to serve as his representatives and expand the scope of his ministry. His representatives, it will expand the scope of his ministry. And the primary theme of Mark's gospel up to this point has been Jesus' authority as the inaugurator of the kingdom of God. Like he has authority, he's inaugurating, he's setting in place the kingdom of God. And now Jesus delegates that authority to his disciples. He's multiplying himself. He's raising up leaders, disciples. And as we've seen, the proclamation of the good news and the driving out of demons are closely related. So he's just saying, hey, go, these, this, is, this is what you're going to do. And the salvation Jesus brings is of cosmic significance. It involves the defeat of Satan and the spiritual forces of evil. It's not just a good news message. It's not just a self-improvement program. There is a cosmic battle happening. And that's why as Jesus sends him out, it can't just be, hey, go preach my good news and I'll do the driving out demons thing. It's like, no, you're going to preach the good news. And when you do, as we've seen happen with Jesus time and time again, the impure spirits are going to cry out. They're going to know the presence of God is on you. They're going to resist. They're going to fight back. And you're going to drive them out because you have my authority. Now, that might be a little intimidating, but guess what? You're going to watch me do it. I'm going to watch you do it. I'm going to teach you how to do it, and then you're going to do it. And you're going to mess up, but that's okay. There's grace for that because we're going to keep pressing on because this is our purpose. They are his representatives. They are extending the scope of his ministry. And I believe there are a few specific things that we need to take away from this. First of all is this, Jesus' response to the mounting pressure 
was to raise up other leaders. His response was to raise up other leaders. Now ask yourself, could Jesus have handled like the pressure? Could he have just done this on his own? Probably would have been less messy. He would have had to deal with less egos, less prideful humans, less screwing up, right? If he would just say, ah, all right, pressure's amping up. I'm going to go deal with this. Or maybe he'd call in some of his angels to help. But no, he chooses to raise up other people. It's just mind-blowing to me. It is like the most complicated option I can fathom of how Jesus would like perpetuate his mission. Oh, you, broken, messy, my creation that has fallen and I'm trying to bring into restoration. Come on, let's, let's do this thing. Like, man, he was perfectly capable of handling this himself. But that's not what partnership looks like. That's not what partnership looks like. Jesus chose to initiate the redemption of his people by calling them into partnership with himself. He could have said, hey, you stay in your lane, bro. I got this. Check this out and just done his thing. But he says, no, I'm inviting you into partnership. We're going to do this together. I'm going to teach you how to do this. And it's going to expand the scope of ministry while I'm here on earth. Come on, let's do this together. Let's do this together. Now, the crowds and the governmental and religious leaders had all been placing plenty of expectations and pressure on Jesus. And his response is this. I'm going to call these 12 followers into close relationship with myself. They'll learn from me. They'll partner with me. I'll give them authority. I know they won't be perfect. I know it will be messy, but it will be worth it because that is the way I have chosen to partner with my creation. That is what he's saying in this moment. This is the way I'm choosing to partner with my creation to bring reconciliation and redemption into this world. Now, when the pressure mounts in your life, I believe that there's something that we can learn from both Jesus and the disciples in this moment. Because the pressure mounts in our lives, amen? We feel it. We have responsibilities, maybe in our personal life, to our families, um, you know, at our, at our workplace, in our communities, whatever it may be, we have responsibilities. We have things that, that add pressure to us. And it, sometimes it's harder than others. It's sometimes the, your burden, you have the burden of more people's like responsibilities or pressure or expectations and other times, but nevertheless, this is something that all of us deal with. Mounting pressure, stuff is intensifying in our lives. And I believe there's something to learn for us from each, the Jesus and the disciples' point of view here. First, from Jesus, when the pressure's mounting, don't overfunction. Don't overfunction. Invite others in, partner with others. Help raise others up to bear the burden. Grow leaders, establish leaders. Consider others as valuable as yourself that you would raise them up to partner with you in these moments. He didn't overfunction. He could have. And I don't know if it's even theologically correct to apply the word overfunctioning to Jesus. Is it really overfunctioning? No, but you get what I'm saying here. He didn't just like do more and keep everybody else down here. He helps others raising them up raising him up. He knows that it's going to be messy. It's going to be kind of a pain, right? He's going to have to clean up some stuff occasionally. But he allows others to step up. He creates space for others to engage and be elevated into growth. I think that's something that we need to think about when the pressure mounts in our own life. Who can I invite in? Who can I partner with? Who can I help raise up to share in this burden, this responsibility. Who is this situation, in this situation, is God calling me to help make better, to make more like him in any given situation? And the second, from the disciples, we can learn that in those times when the pressure's mounting, we need to draw near to Jesus. 
We need to draw near to Jesus. We need to respond to him, be with him, learn from him. Don't side with fear, but side with the truth of who is your king, who is your master, who is your leader, and what you know to be true about him rather than what you fear to be true about yourself. Let me say that again. Choose to believe in the truth of who is your king, your master, and your leader, and what you know to be true about him, rather than choosing to believe what you fear is true about yourself. We can all acknowledge that we have weaknesses, we struggle, we're less than perfect, but even if that's true, there is a truth that overrides the reality of our imperfection. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus who laid down his life so that you could have life and life to the fullest. So oftentimes, the enemy is just pointing out all of our imperfections, all of the reasons why we are disqualified from this glorious calling of a royal priesthood that Christ has called us into. And he points those things out. He says, yeah, but you, yeah, but you, yeah, but you, yeah, but you. And in these moments when the pressure is mounting, we have to make a choice. Am I going to operate out of the fear of who I am, my brokenness, my depravity, or am I going to operate out of the truth of who God is, out of the truth of who I serve? And it doesn't mean that you still aren't imperfect and that you still are going to make some messes along the way. But what it does mean is that the truth of who God is overrides your imperfections. The Word says that His strength is perfected in your weakness. It's not about you obtaining some level of perfection so you are worthy to partner with Him in this mission. It's about Him entering your life and causing you to be perfect because of His presence in it. Perfect for that place, that time, that calling that He has given you. We need to learn these things from the disciples and from Jesus when the pressure mounts. The next thing is, I can only imagine how big a shift this was for these 12, for these 12 men. Like if we're just to put ourselves in their shoes, right? Like what a paradigm shift from the first two chapters and six verses into verse 13 as we read them being called. Hey, I'm calling you. And they respond. And he says, hey, you're going to go preach the gospel. You're going to be with me. You're going to cast out demons. Like, whoa, that's, that's a little overwhelming. Because up to this point, the disciples were watching and witnessing, right? They were kind of along for the ride. And now they're being called into responsibility and like assertive participation. Not just passive, like, hey, come along. And if I need you, like, I'll, I'll let you know. It's like, no, here's what you're going to do. They're being called into another level of engagement. It's like in this moment, they realize that something they thought they were just observing or like along for the ride with was actually a job shadow, <laughs> was actually like an internship, right? And, and now they got to wrap their minds around, whoa, I, I didn't realize that this is where this was headed. I didn't realize this is where this headed. And I think that we can all relate to maybe this happening at some point in our journey. I know for some of us, some of us in this room, we were sitting in a living room or wherever else, you know, six years ago and talking about like, oh yeah, we love church and we, we love Corvallis, but God loves Eugene and so I'm sure he'll help us to love Eugene and we're going to go down and, and who knew that our participation and leadership in a church in Corvallis was actually on the job training or a job shadow for planting a church, right? Like we had no clue, but God called us and we didn't know till that moment he called us that that's what he was doing and what was going on. So Jesus says to them, all this stuff you've been watching me do, 
that has been blowing your mind like nothing you've ever seen, that nobody has ever seen anything like this or heard about this before, yeah, it's your turn. It's your turn to get in the game. That's what he's saying to him here. Now, here's a modern-day example of what this lo- might look like for me. Um, so, so bear with me on this. Now, thanks to, to, to Disney+, Plus, I was finally able to afford to watch Hamilton recently. Anybody else in here watch Hamilton, listen to Hamilton? Nobody's watched it. All right. Well, all right. Well, Doc, we need to get you YouTube or something so you can read up on it. Um, but anyway, Hamilton is this, this Broadway play, like a phenomenal work of art that swept the world by storm over the last four to five years. And it was like minimum $600 a ticket if you could even get a ticket. And it's just been, it's been revolutionary in the way that music and drama and Broadway and how all these things interrelate and cultures and history and all that. So anyway, it's been a big phenomenon. If you haven't heard of it, like, Let's talk after service. I'll pray for you. Um, But anyway, it's such a phenomenal work of art. The creativity and the dramatic zeal in the play is amazing. So for me, this would be like I get the chance to go to the opening night, the first night that Hamilton is on Broadway, which is far out there because I've never even been to New York. But nevertheless, I'm there opening night, sitting in the front row, and, and I'm just stoked to go to this play. And I'm witnessing this talent and creativity like I've never seen or heard before in my lifetime. And I'm amongst other people who likewise have never seen anything like this. It's just revolutionary. There's a, a talent and a creativity that, that hasn't been seen before. I'm like watching history unfold right before my eyes right before my eyes, and there, there's a mastery of the content that I couldn't even fathom personally exhibiting myself. I'm in awe of what I'm watching. In fact, I become a bit of a fanboy of Lin-Manuel, who's the creator of the play and also acts in it. And I come back to every show for the first two weeks, front row. I'm like waiting in line. It's first two weeks, every show right there in the front of the line. And finally, Lin-Manuel recognizes me after a couple weeks in the front row, and he's like, hey, I realize you've like blown your life savings, you've cashed out your life insurance policy and pulled out a second mortgage to come to all these shows the last couple weeks. It's like, hey, why don't you come to the backstage, come backstage and watch it and experience with us back there. So now this is like next level fanboy stuff, right? I'm in the back, backstage watching everything unfold, seeing kind of behind the scenes of how this play is put out, seeing all that goes into their preparation and carrying out of this play. And I, so I watch it for a few weeks from backstage. And then something shifts, something changes. Lin-Manuel comes up to me before the show and he says, hey, things have gotten pretty crazy. The demand for shows is unreal. The crowds are just enormous. People are fighting for places in line to get tickets just to get a seat to see this thing. They don't care how far away they are. People are coming from everywhere. People are buying flights from California and from other countries to come to New York to watch this play, the demand is just unreal. It's becoming overwhelming. So we need, to, we need to put on more plays. We need to do this production in more ways. And he asked me, he says, hey, you've been around so much watching. Like, you've been in the front row, and then you were backstage. You've been around us for a month. Like, it, it, it's time. I need you to go be my role in Atlantic City so that we can be in more venues, reach more places. And, you know, I know this might seem overwhelming, but you've been around this for a month, so I'm sure you're good. I hear you humming the melodies as you're walking around in between shows. You're good to go. Just go make it happen. Go make it happen. Now, praise God, that is never going to happen. <laughs> for everybody. Praise God, 
That is never going to happen. But you know what has happened? Jesus has called you to follow him, to preach the good news and to engage in a cosmic battle with evil, to be his representatives doing everything he has taught and commanded of you and trusting you to be the so- or trusting him to be your source, your provider and your strength along the way. Along the way. And in that, whether we talk about the calling to partner with Jesus or my calling to fill Lin-Manuel's shoes in Atlantic City, there's a ton of pressure that could come along with that. I couldn't imagine getting thrown on some Broadway stage with no talent and having to fill that role in. But hey, I've been watching it for a month, right? These guys are just common fishermen, tax collectors, lay people, no like command of the scriptures, none of that. And Jesus is like, hey, let's go. You're in the game. Like, just imagine the pressure that would have been applied to them. Imagine the, the sinking feeling in your gut and how it would vacillate back and forth with like, oh my gosh, no way, I'm going to run and hide with like, yeah, that's right, he called me. You know, and you get a little strut, a little bit of naivety and pride rises up and then you see people face to face and you're like, oh, no, maybe I'm not ready for this, right? Like, just imagine the, the emotions that would come out of that pressure that you'd be experiencing in that moment. It makes me think of, the first time that I was scheduled to play on the worship team in Corvallis and I was no longer just in the crowd worshiping through music as, as part of the church congregation, but now I'm called up onto the stage where every slip of the finger is heard through the loud fingers and every off-pitch note that comes out of your mouth is heard like there's a different pressure that comes with it. It makes me think of the first time Pastor Seth asked me to preach while he was traveling, and I love Pastor Seth's preaching. I'm like, wait, you want me to stand on the same stage as you and try to, t-? like, there's no way. It makes me think of those kind of moments. And I think a lot of us can relate to things like, it makes us think of the pressure of having our own children instead of just watching other people parent kids. A little different pressure there, Right? Maybe it makes me remember planning my own wedding instead of just attending somebody else's wedding. A little different there when you're participating at that level instead of just observing and witnessing. It makes me think about caring for and being responsible for a home and property instead of an apartment and a covered parking space, which is my previous extent of home ownership or caring for, right? Like, there's a, there's a shift that happens. The pressure changes when we're called to actively engage and take responsibility in something. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing with the 12 right here. And we can't underestimate what the humanity of the moment would have done inside of them and what we might be able to learn from them in the midst of that. Because pressure is applied in our lives when there's a shift and we're being called from being a witness or from observing to partnering in participation. It intensifies the pressure when there is that shift. Like, yeah, I'm just witnessing. I'm, I'm just checking this thing out to know I'm an active, assertive participant in this thing. I'm taking responsibility. I am in partnership here. Something changes. And that pressure that is found in that moment can cause us to do a couple things. It can cause us to do a couple things. That pressure can actually keep us out. It can push us away from our calling, from responding to Jesus by saying, yep, here I am. When he says, hey, come on, follow me. You're like, yeah, (laughs) things are about to get real. I think I'd rather not. That makes me a little uncomfortable. I don't know exactly what that would look like. I don't have the education. My resume doesn't actually fit that position. I don't know if I have any business following you, much less carrying out the mission that you've appointed me to do. And so you excuse yourself graciously from what he's called you to do. 
Or we can respond by pressing in, responding to this call of Jesus by actually pressing in, attaching to him, recognizing that his truth overrides our insecurities and responding to his call on our life to preach the gospel and engage in the spiritual battle that is all around us. Do we press in or do we fall back? That's the choice that comes in these moments when we encounter this pressure, when things shift, when they change. Family, God's calling you into plans and purposes that are far greater than you could imagine. Far greater than you could imagine. He's calling you into partnership and establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Pete and Katie, you can come back up. He's calling you to be his representative in this broken time and place to bring hope and victory over the darkness that is all around us. He's called you. So the question is, what will your response be? Will you respond like the disciples? You say, I choose to believe in the truth of who you are, God. Amen. Let's do this. The pressure is mounting. Will it push you away or will it draw you near to him? Will it push you back or push you towards Jesus? to rely on him, to attach to him, to be your source of power and direction. Because the very pressure that can crush somebody is actually the same pressure that's needed to make diamonds. Like pressure can be a bad thing or it can be a good thing. So will we as a family, will we individually be pressure adverse? Will we resist it when it comes from the calling of your life, or will you welcome the pressure as an opportunity to develop your character, your maturity, your faithfulness, and your faith in Jesus as you step into his calling on your life, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and push back against the darkness and the brokenness that's all around us. There's two responses to this pressure as it mounts. We read about it for Jesus and the disciples. But if we're honest with ourselves, we're experiencing it all around it, all around us. Pressure's everywhere. It's not so hard to see the brokenness and the darkness that exists around every corner. How will we respond? Will we draw near to the Lord? Or will we step back because it's not comfortable? Because we don't know exactly what it'll look like. My prayer for us is that we will press in. We will lean on God. We will trust him and who he is over our insecurities and our spheres of influence, our communities, our workplaces, our communities will be changed because of Jesus working through us. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. God, we, we praise you for your calling on our lives. Father, we pray that you would give us boldness and courage and then dwelling of your Holy Spirit as we respond to you with a resounding yes. We thank you for your call. We thank you for your operation in our lives. God, would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for the call to partnership. Would you help us to live that out in a way that glorifies you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand as we close with worship.